This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. This is Joris Peels. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? I'm well, Max. I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, today we've got Stephen Holmes on the 3D Pod. And Stephen, actually, well, that's... Uh, we have many journalists, right, on the, the 3D Pod. And uh, so Stephen is the editor-in-chief of Develop3D. And Develop3D is a magazine... Uh, well, there's a magazine you can download. The magazine they also have online uh, stuff and the blog and stuff, and they publish about well, 3D printing, additive manufacturing, but also much wider than that. They look into design and CAD and everything from about product development and stuff like that. And uh, he's been working on that for 13 years, and he has a, his own refreshing view on that. Those kind of uh, uh, topics, very independent view, and that's really nice. And uh, a lot of things I agree very. I agree. I completely agree with Stephen. Other things we completely don't agree with. Uh, so that's also really nice. And and Develop 3D as a magazine itself has its own uh, completely own voice. So I really like that. And uh, and I'm a reader myself. So that's it's always good. And it's always good to have someone another different voice out there. So and that's uh, why it's really nice to have uh, Stephen today. So welcome to the 3D Pond, Stephen. Thank you, Doris. That's a lovely intro. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've been working on so this Stephen, over a hundred. How, how did you first get involved in additive manufacturing? How did I first get involved? I mean, my background is journalism. I trained as a journalist and um, came out of university after a master's and immediately fell into the pit of despair that was a, an economic crash. So my dad's an electrical engineer. Um, I've been growing up, probably should have become an engineer or a designer. Um, <laughs> as the black sheep of the family that went off and, you know, wrote stories and things. Um, so I had to return to my homeland in the northwest of England, and I ended up doing public relations, the dark sister of yeah, that is the building. dark arts of uh, <laughs> the better paid journalism, the better paid, better looking sister of journalism, and yeah, I ended up doing uh, public relations for British Nuclear Fuels, which is um, doing public relations for nuclear waste, effectively, and nuclear decommissioning, which is a huge amount of engineering, uh, lots of very unique projects, lots of very cool stuff. Um, and that kind of set me up nicely for, I moved to London, uh, and long story short, I ended up working with a team from Develop3D before it was Develop3D. Um, and I worked with them in a magazine about more about CAD design than anything particularly sort of manufacturing-based. Mm-hmm. Then that, um, sadly, again, another economic crash that went under, and I ended up doing PR for the Institute of Mechanical Engineers, which is learning a lot more about engineering and the people doing some very cool, very large-scale projects. And then Develop3D started up, and they called me and said, do you want to come work for us? And I was desperate to get out of PR. So I jumped at the opportunity. And ever since then, I was kind of assigned um, 3D printing as a this, you know, nearly, what, 14 years ago nearly now? Um, your back then was it was it was moving into the zenith of the hype stage, and I sort of fell into that. And being based in London, where there was a lot happening, it was a good place to be. It was lots of very big sort of announcements and trade shows, and it was a, a very interesting technology to me 
that I could see from having seen you know, unique engineering problems at my previous employments, how something like Additive would do a, a really good job of fixing and stepping in and helping those people. And then first tell us a little about PR, because I think we're, we're, we're going to get, if we do get PR people in here, which I, I don't, I'm not sure we will, but if we do, <laughs> they're very, very, they're probably not going to really tell us all about PR because it, it just, like as a journalist, like PR people, the people that bother you all day, every day, you know? So, so tell us about like, how does PR work? Or what do I need to know as like a non-PR person? I'm sorry. PR and marketing are very different and a lot of companies don't realize this. Um, marketing is, I think the old adage is marketing is is you know paying somebody to say that your product is great is you know to get people to realize it pr is getting people to write about it and say that it's it's great but without giving them money um pr is a very difficult job you're between a rock and a hard place between the, a client and a, a journalist um so i have a lot of sympathy for a lot of prs um because it is a tough gig that they're very well rewarded for monetary wise um I mean, journalism, we get a lot of, you know, we get presented with a lot of information and our job as journalists is to is to turn it around and dissect it and see what is the bullshit and what is the truth. And in an industry as well as fast moving as additive, you've got this issue where everyone's, it's a lot of small companies in this grand scale of things and they all want capital. They all want investment. They're all looking to ramp up the hype because they're wanting dollars they want people to buy their machines. It's 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 not quite snake oil, but there's a lot of colourful language used and um, I wouldn't say misinformation, but there's a lot of sort of I wouldn't say tall tales, but there's a lot of sort of you know smoking mirrors. Maybe I think you could agree <laughs> with that, Joris. Garages and whatnot uh, <laughs> that produce amazing things. Yeah, that I mean, kind of fun thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 getting journalists and getting professionals to take interest and. In, and you know, pick up on their technology. It's a difficult thing to do, um, especially when you've got you know a lot now compared to fourteen years ago. You know, you've got big powerhouse companies involved in this industry. Um, a lot of these companies are now taking on professional PR and marketing companies to to ramp up their image. So yeah, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of interest. It's still a really fast moving industry as well. So I'm I'm kind of delighted to still be on the the peripheral of it. I'm, I'm interested too, because my understanding has always been that if you're a journalist and you switch over to PR, it's harder to come back to being a journalist. Did you find that that was true, that transition? Or was um, it, this is such a technical area that it's less? Not hugely, because I, I didn't enjoy my PR jobs, really. Uh, partly because one was in my hometown, near enough, and I wanted to get to London. I'd always, you know, I spent money to go and do a master's. Um, right and to train to be this journalist and I wanted to work in it. And I got a bit disillusioned when I worked at some publications that I wasn't, you know, you build them up in your head as this, this is the calling that you've always wanted. And it was a bit of a disappointment, but moving to London and realizing there was a journalism job there that I could pursue and something that I kind of understood a bit better and was always, you know, develop 3d. We cover, I don't think I've explained, but we, we cover every industry. We cover everything from like jewelry and watchmaking through to you know consumer electronics, cars, motorcycles, planes, cruise ships, you know spaceships, everything, and how they're designed and how they're built, and the people behind that and the technologies behind that. It's something new every day. Um, I once worked at a magazine where I had to write you know 
just constantly writing features about you know doing sit-ups and press-ups and things okay you can probably guess, you can probably guess which one but it, it is a publication that and you quickly realize oh i've made a mistake this isn't for me uh, my attention span is i i love learning new things and you know being able to to be on the, the you know a really new technology that's really doing cool things and enabling other new cool things to be made with it because you know it's an enabling technology additive it's really nice to be a part of it and as a journalist are you like are you skeptical i agree with you you have to cut through a lot of like stuff that's just like patently untrue or sometimes untrue or and i i tend to have a rule where if somebody lies to me once i'll never write about them again <laughs> and or use them or something like that and then, do you have stuff like that are you more skeptical i think because you worked in pr or no, I mean, I didn't, do, I didn't work in PR for a huge amount of time. So I'm not going to say, you know, I, I know the ins and outs and the dirty tricks. I mean, I've learned most of that from this side of the fence, you know, being a journalist. And most of it is well-meaning. You've got to understand that a lot of these PRs maybe work for an agency and they have a wide variety of clients. You know, they may be doing fintech and they may be doing a bit of 3D printing. And maybe they've got a customer has got like a software for parking or something. And they've got to like, you know, please their clients. And they've got to know all these different journalists. So you can't expect, you know, unless it's someone who's in-house who I feel should have a better grasp of what it is that they're dealing with. And most of the in-house PRs that they exist in this industry are really good. A lot of the agencies, you know, they might just throw an intern on it. And we've all done an internship where we don't actually know what the hell we're doing. Um, we're literally just treading water and trying to get through this this day at work. So I can understand some of these maybe written something that's a bit wrong or they've made a claim to be the world's first and things like that. Um, and it's our job as journalists to check that out as well. I mean, it, it, we have a responsibility. I, I can't imagine there's a journalist who values themselves as a professional who would just print verbatim a press release. You know, it, that's and that's worryingly a, a part of engineering press and part of our industry is, you know, there's not a lot of money in it. And there's a lot of people scrabbling for to making money out of journalism and publishing things. We're lucky that we've got our own voice. We're lucky that we're a very stringent editorial side of what we do. You know, we try and keep a very defined line between editorial and advertising and things like that. Some people don't have that luxury. Some people don't have that time or the workforce. So I can see why, but yeah, I think that's why our readership values what we do as well. They, they can stiff out the bullshit. I will say that when I first entered the tech sector, I was shocked at the number of major publications that would simply reprint a press release. Yeah. Like copy and paste. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's tricky. And a lot of the, the companies now, are, you know, mainly on the software side of what we deal with more than the, the additive, they're big enough now to try and control the narrative. They're big enough now right. to try and push everything as marketing, their own internal blog online and things like that rather than having the, the, the ball ache of dealing with journalists who question things or ask questions that they'd rather not be asked or raise issues. Um, they'd rather, you know, push things out themselves. Thankfully, Additive's a bit more open. I mean, it, it's it's a great industry to be covering anyway. Additive and product design and industrial design, it's, it's such a, a great place to be as an industry. I really love it. And that's why I've been here so long, really, is because every day is every day's a school day is the old phrase <laughs> that's a good way of looking at it and and uh i like that i like that kind of view about it and it is true that it's 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 a very fine especially I, I what i would shock me is that people were like i've heard people like journalists say that then i uh that is oh we're trade press 
like as in like we're not like in the New York Times or anything, you know. We're, we work for like an industry publication, <laughs> so you know, we, yeah. in, in actual fact, we don't have standards, so it's nothing. I'm not compromising anything. You know? No, it's it's that question at dinner parties. Not that I go to dinner parties, um, but that question when somebody asks you down the pub or something, you know. Also, oh, what do you do? Uh, I'm a journalist. Oh, have I read something you've written? <laughs> Probably not for a number of years, um, unless you are, you know, a product designer or. You know, we're we're a specific, neat little band of an industry, and you know, a lot of people fall into it and fall in love with it. Especially, you know, very technical. It's the same for sports journalism. It's the same for a lot of things where you you fall into something and you have a niche and you you love it and you stick with it. The joy that we have is that we get, you know, it's a it's it's technology. It's moving forward, and there's always something new happening, something new around the corner. Um, and so yeah, it it just keeps you interested. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and and so yeah, the 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 classic developed for these stories, kind of like, you know, this is like a feature about like some boffin developing the new <laughs> Aston Martin backend or something, right? Something oh, like that, right? I, I didn't touch that story, but yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna lie, um, I, I saw that come out, and I thought that's something. That's another example of something that's kind of already been done before, and it's another example of that kind of marketing and things that is. I, I've, I've nothing against that technology has probably moved forward. They've done an amazing job. Aston Martin have you know gone wow, this is great. We're going to use this in a, in a product, not production car, but in a, a test vehicle. Um, but you know, people have been three D printing chassis. We've all seen it. I mean, I know you have Joris as well. Like you know, you go to an event. Oh, we've three D printed this axle. I know Ducati did like a swing arm and things, and that was all the rage for a couple of years. It's it swings and roundabouts, and stories come in and out of fashion. You know, one company will do a story with, I don't know, a car company production line about a jig and fixture thing and how they use their little desktop 3D printer to produce jigs and fixtures. Then, you know, literally that story will be repeated and rinsed by every other small format FDM 3D printing company with a different automotive supplier. And you've got to be careful because you know, our re- I can't iterate this up. We love our readers because they're not stupid. We know they're not stupid people. We can't give them the same stuff over and over again and expect them to be like, oh, let's keep reading this magazine. You know, they they know and they work in this industry. A lot of them maybe have first-hand knowledge of one of these stories and can call out the bullshit. So we're very keen to like get the right things in there, keep new things coming, maybe push back on a story if it's like, look, this is very similar to something two years ago. Have you got another customer we could speak to? Have you got some other angle we could chase up? Because we want to talk about these companies and these new technologies. We want to we we're actively pushing for like content. We want content, right? You want content. You want to read new contents. We want to publish new content. The customer wants to get their story out there. Um, so yeah, give us what's new. And I think I think I think that that's. Do you think the magazine format because you guys. Do you still have a physical magazine? I, I, there's yeah. a downloadable magazine, right? But so yeah, the magazine is is you know we do a magazine online and events. Do, but does this format of having a physical magazine event does that give you the freedom to be independent, if you will, to do say, you know, to, to much more so if you just had the blog, let's say, to be to have a voice and to, and to be more kind of like you know upfront and confrontational, maybe. <laughs> Are you saying I'm upfront and confrontational, Joris? Um, well, as a as a trade press journalist, I, th- I do think you can you can well you can call out people on things and you can say this is not good or this is good and where uh, you know as opposed to the cheerleader like everything is amazing kind of uh, 
uh, yeah, Valley, Valley Go Chorus. Uh, like, this yeah. is amazing. The world first. And then this, this is even more amazing, you know. It's, uh, a, th- it's, it's, a, it's a traditional yeah. thing amongst, I think, specialist journalists or trade journalists. Or if you're reading, you know, you get the supplements in the Sunday paper and you pick it up and there's maybe a feature on something that you write about day to day and you read it and there's just some gushing, isn't this incredible feature? Isn't this amazing what they're doing? Um, you know, it's like I saw the you see, the Zinger Aston Martin thing um, was in the mainstream press because a few things still from additive after the glory days when you couldn't move for seeing a, a story about 3D printing in the national newspapers or on the news, it's it's died down. But you still get the occasional one makes it through the net and makes it into national news. And you see this, and if you're reading that and you're thinking, God, this is bullshit. Like, this is just like terrible. If only they knew about X, Y, Z and such and such. But then you then turn the page and you'll start reading a feature about something else and you're invested and you're like, oh, this is incredible. I'm learning so much. When do you realize that a lot of what you're reading is just cheerleading and smoke and mirrors and things like that? Um, so yeah, I think there's a, there's a huge need for trade press. If you're in an industry and you need information, you need to find new things. Um, you're not going to get that from a generic, maybe tech website, let's say. You know, if you're if you're using a serious bit of simulation software, you know, a two hundred word article, very generalized on, right, it's not on a website to do with tech, isn't going to give you any information, any inclination, any useful information. There's a need a need for trade press. There's a need for industry voices. There's a definite need for um, more local. I won't say localized, but more sort of. I won't say niche either, but really kind of, especially in industry, in events. You know, we've seen these, you know, we've just had IMTS in the US, which is beer moth of an event. Um, we've got Form Next happening in Europe in, you know, November. Um, they're like sort of tier one events. You need sort of slightly more localized events to get more exposure. If you go to one of those events, you're not going to get any idea of these small companies doing cool stuff because you're going to spend four hours walking around these giant stands the size of an apartment block. I'm sure Joris can, you know, we've walked around trade shows together before, haven't we? And we've just seen, you know, these huge stands and people taking over huge amounts of real estate with just absolute rubbish. And then you find this one, you know, this one person there with a tiny little sort of lemonade stand almost. And they've got this really cool thing. And that's when you see a sort of a beautiful moment where, oh God, I'd love to write something on you or promote what you're doing because it's really cool and it's going to help people rather than just maybe solving the same old problem. Yeah. Is is that kind of the more effect? Like if you have two companies, let's say, and they make essentially the same product, what which one wins you over to be more compelling at the end of the day? Is it simply just the one that has a list of better applications or is it the one that is crafting a much more enticing story about how they want to help fix the world or, or I mean, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one that saves the most dolphins, I always go for. Um, right, yeah. Right? Now, so if uh, I just put a, a little it, dolphin it, sticker, 26 it, dolphins saved, cover my booth. By buying this product, <laughs> you have saved 15 polar bears. Um, right. <laughs> no, it, it comes down to... A number of factors. It comes down to, you know, how easy is it to use? Is it, you know, is something that you're looking at? If you've got two ident- basically identical systems, maybe, 
but one's got a slightly better user interface. One doesn't. Hmm. You've got to ask questions from like a realistic, really geeky kind of industry voice as well. So like, how much is training? Are you charging for training to use a system? Do you need some specialist training? And if one's charging like, oh, we'll come around and do the install for you for free and we'll give you like a run through two days. Or, oh yeah, you've got to pay an extra $20,000 to have the install done. And um, yeah, then there's a training course. Yeah, that's like $600 a person and stuff like that. There's so many business reasons behind business decisions as well. And we've got to think about that. It's not just, you know, it's the old, you buy a 3D printer and you press print and something comes off and it's amazing. Well, it's not. You've got design it you've got to program it to be built properly on a print bed you've got to use the right material you've got to then post process it you've got to have maybe the post processing station that costs another like as much as the printer again nothing's ever what it seems which is a bit of a bitch it's kind of like you know buying a car then being told you've got to buy the wheels separately and so there's... you have to lease them now, right? Is that... <laughs> you have to like uh, lease the stereo it? system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's the BMW. Um... Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's there's so much, and there's you know we've seen things. I think like Carbon does that. You know, you're effectively you're leasing their machine. You're in a rental, right. which works for some people, but won't work for other people. So is that technology a better technology, or is that a technology a, a worse technology? Um, you know, and it just. It depends on your individual status. I mean, all these technologies are amazing. Like, you know, I think when I first started in this industry and what technology I was going to look at, I the first 3D prints I saw was when I was sent to go to model shops because things were being built in models. And then the desks and desks of people, he would apply fine details and finishes and paint and make things look, you know, super realistic products to go into like design meetings and design reviews and things like that. 3D printing for them, and still is, is just another tool where they can use it to make a little gizmo or a plastic piece or something like that. Now it's this evolved process that's making end-use parts to go in cars and planes and things, which is quite mad to think about when you've gone from like little bits of crappy plastic that just gets sanded down and painted to being, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's an integral component for this you know, heat exchange or whatever. You've got to be careful, and everything is amazing. It really is. You know, I don't want to be one of those journalists that's a cheerleader. I also don't want to be the jaded old guy in the room um, who hates everything, which I'm frightfully close to being, I think. Um, yeah, pass me more free snacks and a whiskey, and I'll just like uh, be negative about everything in the world. <laughs> but yeah, is, is it true that do the negative articles produce, like, do people read them more? I guess they love you more for them. They love you more for them, and the company never forgets you. Yeah. So you make like one permanent enemy, but you make like a bunch of people like, oh my God, that's so nice that you did that. That was so. And they'll say, told the truth. And they'll tell I love that they always say that in private. Right. It's good that you stuck your neck out there. And I'm going to tell you in this LinkedIn message, because I'm not going to say that publicly that I even like your article. Oh, man. I mean, at times, like we've been sent things like to do reviews on, and it's been dog shit. And yeah. Instead of publishing, look, this is dog shit. Like this is, this is industry. There's going to be a use case for it somewhere. Like I say, someone's going to have. This is the best thing ever. It's just not going to be ninety nine percent of the world. So either we just don't publish anything, or we we say, look, 
or, or we speak to the company and say, look, this needs to be better or you can do better. There's no real vast level of negativity unless it's something that's like a plain ripoff or someone's just, you know, just taking the piss with right. a very expensive product that is going to do nothing for you. Um, it's got 26 lasers. 26, yeah. guys. Oh, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> but like, if I look at the, the stuff that excites me, it's either stuff that's ahead of the curve somehow or that takes a block and that doesn't, that takes it away, you know? And that could be really something really prosaic, something really boring, like a support material that actually works, right? Oh, it's, uh, it's always to, the boring stuff. It's always, yeah, exactly. it's always the boring stuff. It's, I'd say it's either the, the, the one person on a lemonade stand at an exhibition where you find they've got something amazing and they've got like literally a shoebox with like some parts in and you're just like, that's incredible. Nobody else is going to see this either. No one else is going to really care. But then, uh, and then, or otherwise, it's like somebody you know might see something at short, and they they're, they're so excited, then they drag you to a stand to see something because you might have missed it. That's always good. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, also, something as you say that just takes out like a prosaic, really boring step of an industry, and then you know because you've been around it long enough to go, God, that's going to save like millions. Like I, I mentioned, like the car jigs and fixtures thing. There's a reason why every company brought out a story about that because that's one of like the absolute killer applications for you know crappy 3D printing is just to make these little yeah, things that absolutely. just do cool stuff that you know it saves them millions. Um, yeah. And it's ah, oh my god! I, before 3D printing, I'd have to like get a machine shop to make a jig, go through the whole process, and then put it in the factory, and it takes a month. And now you can do it and. But then what you but then if you again if you go back to the PR side and the marketing, like where where did you go to with that story? Yeah, you, you nobody um, cares you, you know, excuse me. Yeah, is that um is that the New York Times? Yeah, I've got this headline story for you. Yeah. Listen to listen to this, right? So yeah, the trade press really has a role to play there. And it has a role to understand how I mean, a big thing about what we do, we're not a magazine about 3D printing. There's plenty of those exist and they do an amazing job. They cover like the business side of things, the investments, who's, you know, who's been made CTO, where and when. Our audience don't care so much about that side of things. They, our job is to say, this is a technology as part of your workflow. And it's an increasing part of your workflow because it's been there for years as prototyping. Now you need to learn about it from a manufacturing standpoint. What we do is is, is different in that sense is that where, where there's, you know, Joris mentioned like the standard developed 3D article, like a, a cover story or something, which is always somebody had an idea. How the hell did you make that something that you sell at the end of the day? Um, and it could be a helicopter, it could be a perfume bottle, it could be anything. And it's you know somebody has an idea, and increasingly it's always well, it's it's usually always been around technology. Technology defines how things are made, casting, um, you know machining injection molding most you know recently everything is now injection molded because it takes out so many steps it's lightweight it's cheap it doesn't need a lot of finishing you know it's it's this amazing application it just happens to be murdering you know lots of animals and the climate um <laughs> so it, it, it's it's, only, a, it's it's not in fairness it's not the injection molding that's the issue. It's the material that we're using yeah. in injection. Yeah, it's not, it's not the process. It's the polymer. Right. Um, it's the polymer. But Pick a, get a better polymer. Yeah. <laughs> so so our audience need to learn that, like now, you know, you're not just using 3D printing for making your prototypes, even though it has amazing applications for prototyping stuff. Like I got some through literally today. 
about what some company's doing that I can't tell you about. I mean, I'm like, wow, that's a re- that's amazing what you're doing with that. That's cruel. Um, but then now it's like you can use it to, to make that end use part. And then you need to think about it in a slightly different way. And it also enables things like it enables other things like ceramics. I mean, ceramics is this material that we don't use a great deal in the world because it's an absolute ball like to make anything from. You can't, in its green state, it's like this fragile, delicate thing that you can't really do much with. In its sintered state, it's like hard as, well, harder than nails. You know, it's this really tough thing to work with. So you, if you 3D print shapes using ceramics, it's um, they're absolutely game-changing. You know, you can, the parts last longer, there's, less waste there's you know it's got some great applications as well as just making like you know radio frequency aerials and but you know hip implants and things but one thing you do you mentioned that 3d printing was like very dynamic industry and all this and but really has that much change i mean ceramics is a great example of something that has changed because that was not possible and now it's more and more possible but on the whole we haven't gotten that much better in like let's say the 14 years have you really gotten that much better right from a product design standpoint, as I say, it's gone from being something that was used as part of, you know, if you had the money, if you had an agency, if you were for a design agency, maybe that had the, the funding to go out and buy an SLA printer back in the day. What was it a Viper or whatever it was, you know, the old 3D system stuff. Then it was, you know, just a prototyping technology. Now it's a manufacturing technology. Now, not a lot of things are made in the percentage wise by 3D printing, are they? I mean, they're still not going to be, they're never going to overtake injection molding. It's never going to, you know, replace a lot of things like casting and things, but it can make those processes better. It can, you know, provide, you know, it can create molds faster. It can do test runs faster. It can do lots of cool stuff. And, you know, ceramics is a, is a, a, you know, there's no other way to do it really. So that's kind of like a nice way of looking at it. Um, DED, like the really big, robotic arm gantry with a welding torch attached to it kind of thing making really big parts you know if you're just making a few of those things it's a no-brainer you know there's a real smart way of going around it um and the more you know mass manufacturing might find some little uses for it but it's going to be more on the industrial side and 3d printing is speeding up industrial manufacturing it comes down when you only need to make 10 or something like a rocket engine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's, when it comes down to like making like molds and the really boring stuff again, you know, lattices and things like that. Like I, I wrote a feature last issue about lightweighting and how we're looking at like, you know, the Adidas 4D uh, sneakers with the, with the carbon 3D printed sole. Right. I mean, we're, we're seeing these lattices and people say the immediate thing is, is what happens if I, if I run through dog shit in those, right? How the hell am I going to clean those? Um, <laughs> right, that's the immediate thing everyone's that's saying. The first issues, yeah. yeah. And it, the, the, one day we're not going to have to look at lattices; they're just going to be an infill that you never think about. But they can be made using additive, and it's it they, they have so much benefit. Um, you know, lightweighting is super important, even down to like so. At our events, so shameless plug, um, our event is developed three D live first of November in Sheffield. Um, one of our keynote speakers is from a company called um, Acado, which is like a grocery fulfillment company. If you're in the UK, you'll recognize it. They, they can you know, order groceries online. Way. It gets dropped off your house. It's brilliant. They also design all the engineering and all the, the, the setup for their 
pick and place factory, basically. And Amazon have these big warehouses where they're picking their Amazon sized boxes and they're doing that kind of stuff. That's cool. But then what happens if you've got like a bag of apples? What happens if you've got a toothbrush? What happens if you've got, you know, an 18 pack of toilet roll? You know, your robots have to be so much smarter. Um, what happens if you've got frozen goods? Things have to move really quick and be refrigerated. So their robots are crazy. Um, and they've just made them like nearly half as light. So then they move faster and that puts less pressure on it. Downstream from that is is your groceries arrive fresher, but also they can, instead of having to have a specific gantry built in a specific, you know, industrially flawed, industrially powered building, the lighter weight means they can just build their setup in a normal factory on an industrial estate around the corner from where you live. And, you know, there's, it's, this just downstream is it's incredible what's going to happen because of things like lightweighting. And that's as a result of additive manufacturing. So it's not going to be the cool showy stuff that you maybe see at trade shows with like, you know, super cool lattices. And isn't this amazing? This it's always a bicycle, isn't it? It's always a bike that's been lightweighted <laughs> or 3d printed. It's not going to be that it's going to be the stuff that you don't see that's maybe doing something in a factory or doing something behind the scenes. And that's where, the big money is going to be made and the cool stuff's going to happen. And that's going to be the stuff that maybe, you know, stops us from murdering us all, you know, climate wise, resources wise and things like that. Fair enough. Are there any particular technologies or anything that you are hopeful in the future to like see mature? I mean, it, it's kind of weird because I was hoping a lot for like a lot of the semiconductor stuff because we have a chip shortage and additive can do quite a bit there. Um, but now it's that downstream thing again. It's like, you know, now was it, I don't know what's happened with Ethereum and all that kind of mining stuff for cryptocurrencies. But I know that that means that there's less demand now for GPUs. There's less demand for all these chips for, to just mine currencies. So I don't think that's as, as big a rush point anymore. Um, I'm trying to think of some good ones. Joris? Help me out. Stuff that's actually working. <laughs> well, like, no, like actually, stuff, like, stuff no, no, it's stuff that you're hope that's going to work in the next five to ten years, kind of thing. Uh, bioprinting. Hello. Yeah, I mean, like, do we really <laughs> think bioprinting forever. is viable in five to ten years? <laughs> no, in five to ten years, I, what I hope is in five to ten years, I hope we can do what a, like an intermediate, like for example, we couldn't do maybe full skin, right? But we could do a much better bandage for burning victims, for example. So on the way to making skin, we're seventy percent of the way there, and then we have a bandage that's much better than a polymer one, for example. Yeah. So stuff like that. So the first bioprinting stuff that's actually useful. I'm not saying we could print your granny, right? But just like it's more like, you know, the stuff that's useful is going to really make a difference. I mean, I'm still clinging on to the idea of distributed manufacturing. I'm still clinging on to the idea of, you know, not going full full nationalist, but, you know, bringing some jobs back to the UK from China, bringing some jobs back to the US from China or Mexico or wherever these manufacturing jobs have gone. Not just because I want jobs for people in the UK, but also because a lot of these facilities aren't great that are making things out there. They have lots of you know, hard working hours. It's better for the world if we all work a bit less. Is that too? Yeah, and a little more local as well. Well, yeah, everything's yeah. local. It's more environmentally friendly. I mean, the, the right. The, the story's there. The story's been there for like 14 years or something, but this is going to change yeah. how we make everything and how, um, you know, it's going to be better for everything. But I, I generally hope that it does pick up a bit and 
we can make a few more things, especially in the UK, because we have such an amazing design and engineering, you know, base here for making all kinds of cool stuff. Um, it's just that when we come to scale things up, that's when things, you know, tend to go to Asia. Um, and that's, no, it's not great for everyone. There's a lot of shipping. There's a lot of waste. I don't like that. Yeah. I think I would agree with you. I think I think I hope I I know this is happening. I see this happening. I'm talking to people that are actually doing this, uh, and and not necessarily out of a nationalistic thing, but just to, the, the whole idea. I wrote a post about the desire engine. This whole idea about making exactly what people want when they need it. Right? You get the cash up front. You make a thing in a, an advanced economy, close to the person. You make it on demand, so there's no stock, and you make it precisely as that person would want it or and and using good materials you know good energy any kind of like uh, environmental standards and stuff like that and then really stopping all the constituent parts of that thing traveling around the world 20 times you know i, I love that whole idea and i think for certain things that really is going to make a lot more sense a big thing at the minute with because we cover a lot of cad software and a lot of simulation software a really big thing is why don't designers when they're designing something have a button they can press that tells them the environmental impact of if you design it this way, it's good. If you design it that way, it's bad. It could be better by doing X, Y, Z. And we're starting to see that creep into software now, which is, you know, encouraging. How much of it is you know, greenwashing? How much of it is is useless? That's the skeptical part of me again. Um, you know, reading the press releases, but you yeah. know, you you want to you want to see like this kind of these tools are you know because designers and engineers they want to build a better place i'm not just being you know this isn't my my miss world speech at the end you know <laughs> I, I designers and engineers like proper ones ones that aren't just like you know ripping off existing designs they're designing something to make things better they're designing things to make things work preferably and if they give them more tools to design better things that's amazing because they're going to do things with it um and also, usually making things better usually result, results in them being cheaper as well. Um, it's just finding the methodology to do it. God, I'd be wow. terrible at Miss World. That standing up with <laughs> Donald Trump staring at me while I wear a bikini and try and tell the world how to save dolphins. God. Right. <laughs> it's all right. You'd start crying when the crown would be put on you, so it'd be fun. Yeah. Um. Oh, goodness. Imagine all the people crying in front of the mirror as well, like, all this, yeah, trying to practice practicing. that moment. Yeah. You do yeah. have to practice that moment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, Stephen, thank you so much for, for, for your insight um, today. Thank you for being here. I'm glad that that's my final comment. about. <laughs> <laughs> I'll walk away into the sunset with that. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And thank you again for being here, Max. Always, sure. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening. My name is Joris Peels. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.